All right, so we are in page 34 in the study guide. It's actually the first topical lesson we'll be covering. Not the first one in the book. Uh, one thing I was going to explain, just as I was talking to somebody and it wasn't super clear. The way that the book is, the study guide is set up is that it's set up by the problems and it has a lesson in each chapter followed by a series of lessons that delve into a topic that's related to that section. So we've gotten through the, the chapters on divisions, so now we're in the topical lessons. So if you see in the top, you'll see like here's the chapters up here, and then down here is the, the list of topical lessons. So we'll do that for roughly that for each of the problems that we talk about, each of the problems in the Corinthian church. I actually remember. All right, uh, so last time we talked about chapter four, and the summary that I would put of chapter four is that God's kingdom is upside down, such that those who put themselves last are the greatest, and then the greatest are the last. This is kind of this inverted kingdom, and Paul's reminding them of that, and he, he recognizes this is going to shame them, because this is not how they've been thinking about it. And I think you have to read it with that, like what Brad said, is Paul's saying something sarcastically, like, oh, you guys are kings, I wish we could be kings like you, and then gives this procession, and he puts them at the end, right? But of course... The first is the last, and the last is the first. So that means the end is actually the first. Uh, and then he, he gives himself, he gives the apostles and Timothy's examples of that, living that principle out, and then recognizing that they should do the same thing. Uh, one thing I was going to say, too, is I, I'm gonna, I was thinking of changing the agenda for the whole class a little bit in that replacing one of the topical lessons with a class where we can go through some of the questions that we didn't have a chance to cover that you might want to talk about. So people have mentioned stuff, it's like, oh, I was really, really hoping to get into such and such question in one of the prior lessons that we didn't have time. So I think we can get some of those in. So I would say that if there's some topic that you want to cover that we haven't covered, or there's a question in there, like I was really hoping to talk about that, let me know, and we'll try to get that into that, that lesson. All right, so with that said, like I said, I think we're on, we're on page 34, if I remember right. I'm going off memory, I didn't look at it recently, but. And with that said, then Josh is going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this evening that you've given us. And we ask that you would be with us in this study as we consider the book of 1 Corinthians. And that we would consider it with an open mind and an open heart. It's a letter to people who lived so long ago. Many of the things that they struggled with and many of the questions they had are things that repeat today, um, things that we struggle with ourselves. So help us to read it and really drink in the things that you would like us to understand there and apply from Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm curious, how many of you have read the book or watched the movie called The Giver? Yeah, remember, it's the one where he puts his hands and he transfers memory. Okay, so about 15, maybe even 20 years. That's pretty good, actually. So let me just tell you about this. The first part of the book, it tells a story of this utopia, and it seems like a paradise. It looks like everything's perfect. The weather is controlled. It never rains, yet kind of like the, the Garden, of, Garden of Eden, everything's still lush, and the temp is perfect. There's no suffering. Everybody's physical needs are taken care of. And there's perfect harmony, there's no fighting. There's no sexual sins, there's no adultery, there's no fornication. 
And so it tells you this world that's been controlled. Like mankind, it's in the future, the mankind has controlled it. But they control other things too, like language. If you say something that doesn't make sense, they'll stop you and say, precision of language, please. They have redefined the family. Parents don't have kids. Rather, people will file paperwork to get a spouse. And if you want to have kids, you ask for kids, and then you file paperwork, and then they they will transfer your child from one of their birthing centers. Emotions are controlled, too. People take pills, and the pills subdue their passions, both positive and negative. It also takes away their ability to have sex. They also control life and death. When people get to a certain age, they go through this thing called the ceremony of release, and they send them to a place called elsewhere. But if you know what's going on, they're actually killing these people when they hit that age. And it's not just the elderly. If they have, from the birthing center, if they have a child that's just not growing fast enough, they just kill it and throw it out in the trash. Most of the story is told about this guy called The Giver, and that's where, hence, the title comes from. And he absorbs all of the memories of suffering. So people who have suffered from loss, he absorbs those memories. Or people who remember war, and he, he takes them all in for the village. And so they don't have to be burdened with them. He's burdened with them. And it's clearly in the book, she intends for him to be a type of Christ. And it's not hard to see how that would be. But the thing is, is that if the giver dies... All those memories flow back to everybody else. And the people aren't prepared for that, right? They're trying to isolate everybody else from these terrible things. And so they have to find a new person to replace him. And they pick this boy who's 12 years old named Jonas. And what he does is he has these sessions where the giver puts his hands on Jonas and he transfers the memory into Jonas. And most of these memories are memories of of terrible things. People who are recalling their children's death and the despair that came afterwards or memories of war and that sort of thing. And this tears up, it tears up this 12-year-old boy who has to receive these terrible things and he's never heard of these things. He lived this sheltered, perfect life. But it also tears up the giver because he doesn't like having to do this to him. And he usually tries to end with a positive dream. And so he gives them all these terrible dreams one time and boy, Jonas, he asks, he's like, what is your favorite memory? He said, you don't have to give it to me, because when you give it to them, it transfers from the giver to Jonas, and then the giver doesn't remember it anymore. And the giver says, I'll give it to you. I'm happy to give it to you. And so he lays his hands on Jonas. And the book says, Jonas felt the joy of it as soon as the memory began. Sometimes it took a while for him to get his bearings to find his place, but this time he fit right in, and he felt the happiness that pervaded the memory. He was in a room filled with people, and it was warm, with a firelight glowing on a hearth. He could see through a window that outside it was night and snowing. There were colored lights, red and green and yellow, twinkling from a tree which was oddly inside the room. On a table, lighted candles stood in a polished golden holder and cast a soft, flickering glow. He could smell things cooking. He could hear soft laughter. A golden-haired dog lay sleeping on the floor. On the floor, there were packages wrapped in brightly colored paper and tied with gleaming ribbons. As Jonas watched, a small child began to pick up the packages and pass them around the room to other children, to adults who were obviously parents, and to an older, quiet couple, man and woman, who sat, smiling together on a couch. 
While Jonas watched, the people began one by one to untie the ribbons on the packages, to unwrap the bright papers, open the boxes, and reveal toys and clothing and books. There were cries of delight. They hugged one another. The small child went and sat on the lap of the old woman, and she rocked him and rubbed her cheek against his. Jonas opened his eyes and lay contentedly on the bed, still luxuriating in the warm and comforting memory. It had all been there, all the things he had learned to treasure. What do you perceive? the giver asked. Warmth, Jonas replied, and happiness. And let me think, family, that it was a celebration of some sort, a holiday, and something else, something I can't quite get the word for it. Jonas hesitated. I couldn't quite get the word for the whole feeling of it, the feeling that was so strong in the room. The giver told him, that feeling is love. Jonas repeated it, love. It was a word and a concept new to him. In this book, the writer uses the story of Christmas to represent the incarnation, that is, Jesus coming to earth. And she uses it in two places. The first one is this one where this boy, Jonas, who's been lived the sheltered life, doesn't even know what love is. And she uses it at the end when he does an act of love. Now, think about the story. It's defining this, this thing that looks like a utopia that at the end you realize is actually a dystopia. Something's very wrong. They have redefined the family. They have a preoccupation with controlling others' thoughts by controlling their language. And children are killed using a euphemism to hide what's really happening. Or you, see, you see what she's done. We live in the dystopia. This is our world. But she also tells us a world where people don't actually know what love is. At one point, Jonas goes to his parents. And they're, they're talking, and finally he says, Mom, Dad, do you love me? And his dad laughs. He's like, Jonas? Precision of language, please. He says, if, if you would have asked, do I enjoy your company, well, then that would be fine. And his mother says something like, well, if you were to ask, are we are proud of your accomplishments, yes, we are. But to use an antiquated word that has no meaning like that, you know better than that. So do you understand why you shouldn't use that word? And Jonas looks at them, and he says, yes, yes, I do. And then the book says, that was the first lie he told his parents. And so the, the story revolves about what does that mean to have this definition of love? And the reality is, is like the more you read the book, you realize we live in that world. Right? People use the word love and they have totally different definitions of what they mean by it. Just listen to songs. Right? They talk about love and it's like, you're not, you're not talking about love. And like I said, the writer, and she's pretty, she's pretty clear about this. She's writing a book that's supposed to tell you something about Jesus' story. It's a, it's a story told of a world in which the incarnation is lost. And what I love about the gospel stories, when you reflect on it, you realize that God is trying to tell us what love means and what it is. But he doesn't do so by giving you a definition, by giving you a lexicon. He shows us what love is by giving somebody who dies on the cross. You want to know what love is? You look at Jesus on the cross, of God being pushed out of his own world, of his own volition, because he knows he can save some. That's what love is. Right? It's not just defining it, it's showing us what it means. And I think that's what this point of the, the book of the giver is intending, intending to do. So what I want to do today, I want to talk about the cross. Right? Paul, 
Paul thinks that the Corinthians have lost the message or they're losing the message of the cross. And if they had understood it, it would have fixed so many of the problems that they had. So let's talk about that. I'm actually going to start with question number five. How has your understanding of the message of the cross changed for you? Like, and when I say how, the question's intentionally ambiguous for two reasons. One, how could mean the ways in which your understanding had gotten better? How could also mean the methods you used to understand it better, to come away with those thoughts? So how has your understanding changed over time? Yes, Kate. Yeah, that's a good point, because in theory, God could have just said, you're saved in some way, and just however he would have done it, and just moved on, right? But it's, it's more than that. There's more to it. That's, it's in there, but it's only one aspect of it. What else? Oh, so that's interesting. So it's like we can see we see both love and hate there, depending on who you're talking about, right? Obviously, hatred toward him. And if we're not careful, we can focus on the one to the exclusion of the other, not see they're actually two sides of the same coin. We have to see that somehow we bring them into a single account, and you see the hatred, and you see the destruction, and then you can see the love on the other side. But we have to actually incorporate that in the right way. And it's point, that's a good point, too, because I've heard of people who say, and I think there's a, I partially agree with them on this, is that they worry sometimes we can get so focused on the brutality of it that we focus in on the, well, you, you hear somebody give a description about how whipping would open people's backs and, you know, the quivering muscles and all that stuff. And it's like, you know, yeah. We can, we can lose sight of the meaning behind that by focusing on the brutality. And I can understand where they would go with that, because I think part of that is we have to actually work that in, because I think they intended for us to see, know something about crucifixion so that we can see how that all works in. Greg? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. The Gospels say, and he was crucified. They, they give us very little detail as far as like, what that is. Do 
he forgave the men who were driving the nails into his hands. He spoke with the thieves next to him on the cross. He made sure his mother was taken care of. Um, so, so for me, I've, I think as I've gotten older, I've, I've tried to take more time to consider what he did while he was up there. It was all very intentional. It wasn't just that he got up there and died. Um, but man, he was, he was very intentional with every word he said. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. We have to try to weave that in because it's kind of like, remember it was Brad Pettis talks about how we can talk about the gospel and he compared it to something where you have, have little volume knobs and sometimes we turn one aspect up so high we blow away the other ones. So we have to somehow incorporate the ideas in without blowing away all the other ones. Yes? Yes, I read a ton of books on crucifixion, which is kind of funny because, well, actually, reading books on crucifixion is not funny, actually. <laughs> but one time I was told, Misha, like, I'm having a hard time going to sleep at night. And she's like, well, what have you been reading? And then I kind of smell like, well, actually, I was reading some books on crucifixion, just on the history of it. But what surprised me, why I didn't see it, was that the books didn't fo- focus on the brutality. If by brutality you meant, like, the, the physical... The, you know, focusing on the lashing and the blood, per se, but it more focused on the meaning, particularly what crucifixion meant in that culture. And that was one of the things that really surprised me is how much the shame of it. I remember somebody saying, sometimes people ask, why did Jesus have to die? And they said, there's almost, as, we're missing something here. Jesus didn't just die. He didn't just die in a car accident. He died crucifixion. It wasn't just that he died. It was the manner of his death is actually important, that it had to be that kind of death. And I think the shame aspect is one of those things. Uh, so I've noticed recently how extreme the story is. We talk about from a physical standpoint what Jesus went through, but I'm, I'm more thinking about the evil that he endured. So he, he, he seems to bring out all the worst of humanity. Betrayal, political maneuvering, um, just anger, hatred, all those things he brings out. So he, he takes the things that are the most evil in the world and through love transforms them. Yeah, it's funny the way you said that, because at first it sounds bad. Like, he pulls out the worst of humanity. But actually, the Gospels do say that. Not that he makes them worse, but he exposes it, that it was already there, and then shows us how we can actually turn that around. And I think that matches part of why there's the shame and just the brutality of the crucifixion. Because could it be that part of that is to show us what sin does? Right? You want to know... 
when I read some of the stuff, they said when people are crucified, they don't even look human anymore. As if the three actually mentions that. So think about it. An innocent man gets hurt. Sin does that. Sin does not always hurt the people who did it. That part of what makes it sin is the fact that it hurts innocent people. Not only that, it makes us look subhuman. Right? So that, I think that's where the, the brutality the starts to come in and we can see it connect with the message. Uh, Alan? I often have reflected so much on the brutality of the cross that I miss the spiritual going on. And when he wants the cup to be removed from him, that has all Testament imagery. The, the, the desolation, the astonishment, the punishment, the separation from God, the, the, all that goes along with that, our sins being placed on him. He was not afraid of the tree. He was not afraid of the nails. He, he made the mountains from which they mined the ore to spite the nail. He was not afraid of that. And so when I begin to think of the deeper meaning of the cup, and just that to me, you know, the cross had to be picked because it showed that brutality. But the other side is so hard to think about my sin and what he went through spiritually because of that. Yeah, good point. Raymond and I have had a lot of conversations about typology. Because it's always how hard, I always worry that I'm pushing some of the typology too far. But then I read some of the stuff in the New Testament where they make these connections. And I'm like, well, maybe sometimes I feel like I don't take it far enough. Right? There's so much going on there. Jesus didn't just die in a 50 camel pile up on some Jerusalem highway. Right? There was something more to it than that. Yes? For me, I always studied the scripture in compartments or, or by characters or in some because I've gone through the same thing where I felt like I compartmentalized it and actually John Carlin and I were just talking about Ezra and Nehemiah and I was like maybe we've been reading that a little bit wrong in the sense that we, we read it as this is how you cause a spiritual revolution when maybe you start reading it again there's a lot of weird stuff in that book like they seem to be trying to turn people around and they just can't seem to do it but in the story of Jesus it makes total sense it's almost like you get to the point where you you could imagine one of those people saying, it's almost like the Torah is not going to do this. We need something else. It's like, yes, right, exactly. You need something else to really finalize that change. And I would say that I've gone back, and I used to preach more sermons that were topical. I'm not against topical sermons, by the way. So it's not what I'm going to say. But 
And I switched away from ones where you take a text and you just work through it. Because here's the problem with topical that you have to be careful of, that you don't just take, you don't just use the Bible as raw material for what you want it to believe. You don't just take a narrative. If it's a narrative in the Gospels, it's probably best to keep it a narrative rather than turning it into an essay. Because God did the opposite. Right? He took an idea, a concept, and he turned it into a narrative. So let's keep that narrative format. Again, I'm not actually against topical sermons, but it's just something to be aware of. Uh, John? Yes, sir. Yeah, we have to, it's, it goes, it works in nicely with Carrie's point. We have to look at it, not just the historical washing away of sins, but that next part, which shows us what had gone wrong and how we can make that right. There's something you said that reminded me too. You just said, how did you put it? If we saw what love is, that person would be crucified. I was reading something, it was Plato's Republic. Okay, not a Christian work by any means. Plato was 400 years before Christ. In the Republic, he records a conversation. He said, if a good man ever came to this world, a truly good man, he'd be crucified. And I was like, what? This is 400 years before. I mean, it's totally bizarre, but he said the exact same thing. And he said it 400 years before it actually happened. And I have no good reason to think that he got that because he got some sort of special revelation. He just put it all together. And that's pretty shocking when you think about that. Uh, Mitch? And I found the same thing, and I don't know if this is the aspect you're thinking of too, but it, I reflect on it because I realize how hard it is to do these things. It's really easy to read about, and you even go do it, and you're like, okay, I have a way more respect for what he could do. I remember there was a non or a, Christ, a person who had become a Christian. He said, it sounds backwards, but it makes a lot of sense. He said, before I was a Christian, I never struggled with sin. And then I became a Christian. Because, of course, he hadn't resisted it before. That was the difference. And C.S. Lewis says the same thing. He says, you don't even know what goodness is until you try to be good and you realize how hard it actually is. Anybody else? Any other comments? Josh?
Yeah, good point. That whole idea of sacrifices is not intuitive to mankind. Although in, it's one of those things also when you reflect on it more, I see that it starts to fit a lot more than we think. Because I hear people say things like, person, let's say person was a criminal, got out of jail. And they say, I paid my debt to society. It's like, hmm, interesting. So they see that there's, that sin causes a debt. I agree, right? I mean, stuff like that, you start to see is maybe it's more intuitive than we think if we really reflect on it. One of the things that I had changed on it too was that the seeing how countercultural it was, and at, in many ways, in ways that makes so much sense, because I remember somebody saying, You ever heard this, this phrase where somebody say, The gospel, you shouldn't believe the gospel because it's out of step with society? I think that's exactly why you should believe it. Now, there's more reasons than that. But just think about it. If you said it's, it's countercultural, Therefore, you should not believe. You're just saying you should agree with whatever your culture believes. But listen, think about heroes. Heroes always question the ethics of their culture. That's what makes them heroes, and they usually give their lives for it. Okay, Martin Luther King, for example, I'm just going to throw somebody out because it was Martin Luther King on Monday. He did not agree with the way we thought about this. This is why he challenged society. Right, so they recognize that, that that's what heroes do, but then they're like, but, but don't be countercultural. See, the fact that the Gospels are always countercultural, they're always countercultural because they always question the way we do things because it's better than the way we do things. That's exactly what makes it so valuable. So I think it actually makes a lot of sense. And if you read about the, the culture and the way that people thought about crucifixion, you realize, I think, kind of to, uh, to the prior point about the crucifixion and, and comparing it to electric chair was that this was a major issue for people back then who had seen crucifixion and known that only criminals get, get killed and, and slaves. I, this was a, a real hurdle. Paul mentions that. All right, any other comments on that? All right, so let's go on to number six. So how would your understanding of the message of the cross change how you live and think, or how has it changed how you live and think? You taught everything she knows. 
that it's all hinged upon that, having that in mind. And as opposed to, like, we look at, like, the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know your impression of the fruit of the Spirit. It seems kind of like frolicking through a field of tulips or something. Like, oh, it's, you know, love, joy, peace, happy, no, it's just, oh, everything's so wonderful and happy. And when you look at all of those things with cross-tension classes, that love we just talked about. But joy through the cross, through bearing microbes, peace, through self-sacrifice, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness through cross, that I might be more patient for bearing. And then you get to self-control. That I I rein myself in for this. And if anything, the forgiveness, and we talked about it just we hinted at some of the things, the aspects of it. Forgiveness in and of itself isn't just like you said about God. Oh, I just, you know, like this disappears. Oh, I forgive you. You know, you you hurt me, I just forgive you, and that's it. Like it just naturally disappears, but it doesn't. Someone had to pay it. That's why Christ had to die. Not that just God would go, okay, you're forgiven and you're forgiven, but you're not forgiven. That is, you all can be forgiven, but the judge has to pay to be just, to be perfectly just and to be the justifier. And that's not just for God, that's what he's calling me to do for you. Sacrifice to be on a cross to forgive that way. That I have to sacrifice myself to forgive. And I think at times we don't forgive that way, that it's just more of, I just have to go and I'm going to still harbor ill feelings as opposed to counteracting it through cross like means. Yeah, good point.
Yeah, that's a good point. There's a bunch of things that, if you think about the cross, that increase in magnitude, and there's other things that decrease in magnitude. Okay, sins increase in magnitude. They, they have a cost associated with them. God didn't say, oh, well, it's no big deal. So you shouldn't say, oh, well, it's no big deal when you sin. And on the other aspect, I can say one of the things that increases magnitude is that, which we meant Carrie opened us up with, but his love for us, I mean, that is increased in magnitude. The will he was willing to pay that level of a penalty for somebody like me? Like, I don't, God, I don't think he got a good deal out of this, but he did it. point. It's, I can't remember if it was Katrina or if it was Josh who said, it's like inevitable that that should, I think it was Josh that said it's inevitable if you really capture that. Yes. Yeah, that, that's a good point because the fact that we are not bound by our past means that we actually have a future. That's the flip side of it. So it's not just that I'm this horrible person who did those horrible things. It's like, you know, you've been set free, not just away from the things that you're not supposed to do, but the positives of what you are supposed to do. So it's, that's what I like about the cross is it's, it gets rid of the past, but then sends us in a new direction for the future too. can do it as a couple, so you're good.
Yeah, I think it's a good point because the way that the New Testament writers seem to do it is they'll talk about both the death and the resurrection, but in some cases they've got them so intertwined it's hard to pull them apart. And I think there's a good reason for that. Because if you think about it, it's not just that he resurrected and therefore he showed his power of death. He took the most cruel, horrible way in which the state would try to send a message, you do not mess with us. You mess with us, this is what we do to you. That's why they would do it on the edge of roads, so everybody could see it. But he took away those nations' power because he made the cross, in a certain sense, he made death nullified for them. He took away their power, right? This is, and I think that's all tied in there. No, no. Now everything we do in our life. See, the couples thing, we got that going on. <laughs> but it's like all these things all of a sudden are invested with some spiritual value. And we're going to get into later about things like sexual relationships. It's like we are supposed to see this as being shifted because of our understanding of the cross. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, I can't imagine anybody, unfortunately there are people who, they, well, I think it was, Mitch, you said something about how there's an understanding and then there's knowledge, and there's people who just understand it as data. I, 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 can't, I can't get it how people can sit there and understand it as data and not move to the next level, right? It just doesn't make any sense. But then again, I see in my own life, I'd say my own understanding was more on the data level with a little bit of knowledge, and it's just kind of deepened from that point. Uh, did I see, John? Yeah, John. Yeah, it's a good point. It's not just freedom from, it's freedom to, to do something else. There was a Calvin and Hobbes years ago, and in it, the, is it Cal Calvin's the boy, right? He was saying, I'm worried about Christmas. And then the tiger Hobbes was like, well, what are you worried about? 
He's like, are you worried you're not good enough? He said, well, yeah, I mean, there's some of that. And he said, but then, it's like I tried to list out all my things, and maybe I could convince myself I'm good enough. And then Hobbes says, maybe being good is more than just being bad. And then Calvin says, yeah, see, that's what I'm worried about, right? It's got to be not just freedom from doing bad things. It's got to be that freedom to go actually change the world for the better, too. Yes. Because it's a yeah, good point. Because when we talk about love, he's defining the type of love he's talking about. And a lot of times we use love. I think it was Tony who said something about this. It's like we, we almost think of these joy, peace, it's all happy, happy. It's almost feminized in some sense. I don't actually say it's feminized, but the way we think about it in our culture. It's rainbows and unicorns and pink. And it's like, no, no, the type of love we're talking about is the type of love that doesn't give up. Even if it means leaving absolute perfect place to die naked on a cross. Because you could save some people. That's what this means. And that encompasses that some of the stuff we would consider the feminine version of love. But it includes that what we consider the masculine parts too. All right. We got 90 seconds. How does this fit? We've, I think we've already made some of these connections. How does this fit into the message that Paul gives to the Corinthians? Actually, it might be, it's more than 90 seconds. So, Chris, you can sit down. So how would you make the application? It's the very thing that they're not doing for one another. It's the very thing they're not doing for one another. That's the whole problem in these first four chapters. That's how he knows that they're not spiritual because it keeps wobbling. If they were this for each other, all these problems would go away. All these problems would go away and they'd be able to excel toward better things. But they can't. They're stunned. They're stunned because they're... They don't have the mind of Christ. They have flesh and Yeah, yes, there's a lot there. It's like they have, they, they're stuck where they're at. They can't move to the next step, right? Because they don't really have the mind of Christ. And you said the spiritual, because we talked about chapter three, like what does spiritual mean? And there's almost a little bit of a surprising twist in hindsight, because he says they're not, they're not ready for some of the bigger stuff yet. And I think when we think of that, we think, oh, what do we mean the bigger stuff? We mean the, the complicated, logical stuff. He said, you know what he says? He says, you know how I know you're not ready for that? Because of the dissensions in the way you treat one another. So that, has, that cross where it really infuses, that's not just something you know, it's something that 
It's not even just something that you understand or even not it's something that you are. You're becoming like that, which is a lifelong commitment. And if you had that, boy, go read the rest of this. A lot of these problems would be much better. Alright, was that the second bell? Okay, I figured so. I was hoping it wasn't, but whatever. Alright, thanks y'all. Oh, so next week, or on um, what day is it? Wednesday? On um, Sunday, we're gonna go do one of the other topical ones. We're gonna talk about Ways that we can avoid divisions, the one thing that's a little bit weird about that is that I want to take one of the options off the table, which is that there are reasons you should divide if somebody believes something that's completely counter to the gospel. I want to not talk about those. Okay, those I think are more clear-cut. I have seen cases where I think the church split over an issue, quote-unquote, and I don't think the issue is the issue. I think something else was going on there. So I kind of want to dig out some of that stuff. Well, actually, Brad's teaching that one, so maybe he'll do this, so... Whatever. <laughs> but I want to dig out some of the stuff that happens underneath the surface in which a division causes. It's not really about the issue. Right. Well, I'm of Luke, not of a Brad. So. <laughs>